All unhappy, all happy families are alike. But every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All happy families are alike. But every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. First line, Manikrana, Tolstoy. It's good. Let me give you some pop culture wisdom. This is something I found on Google. So it's anonymous, uh, I presume. Nothing is perfect. Life is messy. Relationships are complex. Outcomes are uncertain. And people are rational. Okay? Pop culture wisdom. Two very different sources, but common thread that you see there, which is broken relationships. Something that we can all identify with. The Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about strained, broken, difficult relationships. He and Peter did not always see eye to eye. Right? They have some famous clashes. Uh, as missionary partners in ministry, Barnabas and Paul separated over their differing opinions on John Mark. Now, they later mended that rift, but that took some time. Paul also navigated some pretty tense issues with some of the churches that he found that he pastored. Now, there's no doubt Paul had a very potent personality. I think that is apparent to me. Paul is a straight shooter. He is direct. He can be blunt. He can be confrontational. He has strong opinions, certainly. But Paul was not without humility and compassion because grace changed Paul. So Paul had a particularly difficult relationship with the Corinthian church, which is what our reading from is from today, our New Testament reading and what I'm going to preach from. Um, he wrote at least three letters to them, two of which we have in the New Testament. And those epistles, if you look at them, they take up a, quite a bit of real estate in the New Testament. So they must be awful important. He gave them a lot of pastoral and apostolic attention. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, which is where we'll be today, things are not well between him and that church. In our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, Paul is responding to some criticism of his ministry. Um, but he doesn't stop there. He goes far beyond that. And he points the Corinthians back to the reconciling work of Jesus. I would encourage you to have your Bibles out for this. Um, Paul is dense. Uh, he can say so much in what we would consider one sentence. And Paul is often building a case or making an argument. And there's, there's such a progression to his thought. So if we don't track with him carefully, ah, you can kind of get the law. So I want to be really... Uh, fastidious with how we proceed through these verses. Fastidious, not, not more. Okay? So 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. That famous opening line, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, you may go, hold on, how oh, do I like that word? Uh, and we need a sense of the connotation there, because it doesn't quite mean maybe what we think it means. This is in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing reality. I mean, it happens, it's, 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 it's happening now, it's gonna to happen to me tomorrow. It's something that is in play. The love of Christ controls us. But this is not just a forced march. We're not robots. We're forced to do something. It's not what it is. This verb has some great connotations. I wanna explore this just a little bit with you. It has some great positive connotations. Uh, the love of Christ holds us together or the love of Christ encloses us, or the love of Christ holds us fast. That's one way it controls us in this sense. And I think compels is frankly a better translation. I think NIV goes there. I like that a lot better. 
In this sense, it means that the love of Christ compels Paul to act. Compels him. But it can also have a negative connotation. It can mean the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ restricts us. Now, I really don't think there's a wrong answer here to be found anywhere in, in these connotations or nuances. Whether the love of Christ compels and empowers Paul to action, that's the first case, or whether constrains or restrains Paul to certain choices, both accurate. So, big picture, they both result in some sort of action. I want you to hear that. The love of Christ compels us to some form of action. Both of these are consistent with Paul's uh, MO in ministry. Paul believed that we were accountable before God and he had a healthy fear of the Lord. You see that back, if you look back in verse 11, which wasn't in our passage. But he also believed in the love of Jesus, the love of Christ, verse 14, which is his focus in this passage. Now we know this paradox. Uh, the love of Christ, it's our yoke. So it's weighty and it requires all of us on one hand. And then also it's a source of freedom and empowerment. So it's a paradox. Paul embraced both of those. But the love of Christ raises a question. Is Paul talking about Paul's love for Jesus? Or is Paul talking about Jesus' love for Paul? See what I'm saying? I want to suggest to you this is not a both and. Sometimes in scripture there's kind of a both and. This is not a both and. The love of Christ means what compels Paul is Christ's love for him. That is what compels him. Which makes perfect sense as we get into the next verses, but... That's coming. Just, just wait, wait. I think they prove that out. They bear that out. It's not that our love of Jesus doesn't matter. It's not it. But how about you? My love for Jesus, it waxes and it wanes and it's pretty darn undependable. Okay? Human love, and what I mean by that is the flesh, for God is not a foundation I want to build much of anything on. No thank you. This is about strong, sure, certain and an unchanging foundation God's divine love for us that's it that is what compels Paul to action so that's the love of Christ he's talking about here this love of Christ is what fuels him drives him it's his main motivation the love of Christ compels us it's the only thing that keeps us on the right track it's the only thing that offers us real strength and fortitude and the conclusion of the matter for Paul and us in verse 14 and 15 is something like this. He, Jesus, he died for all that all might live and not for themselves, but so we could live like the one who died for us. So Paul begins to inch towards a mighty thing that I'm going to play out as we go along, which is reconciliation, which is relational, relational. Now, that pesky little word for all, we might be tempted to skip over, right? It's deceptively simple. Oh, I don't want to miss that, verse 14 and 15. What Paul means by that is an awful lot. He teased that out just a bit. So the death of Jesus covers a lot more than you'd think. His atoning blood is more than sufficient for all of humanity. It even encompasses the creative order, the world. Look at Colossians 1.20. It speaks of God reconciling all things to himself on heaven and on earth. Everything. Having made peace through his blood, it says. Romans 8.21 speaks of Jesus' sacrifice for all. It speaks with this kind of similar, uh, most cosmic scope. Jesus redeeming uh, creation itself. So the incredible reconciling benefits, key word, of Christ's death 
cover every created thing, not just human beings. So this is that new heaven and new earth. It's about the restoration of all things for which Jesus died. Now, you know this, but as human beings, some will refuse God's outstretched hand of reconciliation. Right? But here's what I think is incredible about God and the nature of grace. In spite of that, in spite of that, God still makes a habit of going above and beyond what's actually just required. Why does he do this? He seems to delight in overabundance. He seems to delight in giving excessively. He seems to delight in being extravagant. And some would say wasteful. But I think this is just the nature of his grace. The father in the parable of the prodigal son. Very extravagant. Jesus' choice to wash Judas' feet. Isn't that a waste? Why do that? He's about to betray him. Why break bread with him? He's about to betray Jesus. Why do that? Or, even this, look at the leftover portions of the loaves and fish after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Here's the great irony there. It's more than what was given initially. So God's leftovers are way more than what we bring. Why do that? Why have that? Why not just feed the 5,000, have it be nice and tidy, and that's it? Huh? God gives an abundance. God gives an overabundance. So the efficacy of the love of Jesus it is enough to cover the world and everything in it. He died for them all. That is the all Paul is speaking about. It is vast and it's cosmic. And this is all, this all-encompassing love of Christ compels us to do what? So we haven't really gotten there yet. We just know it compels Paul and us to do what? What is that? Verse 15. This is what it's aiming at. That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Simple. The love of Christ compels us to do what? Serve others. Live selflessly. One author puts it this way. We move from being egocentric to Christocentric. Paul is shifting the conversation here masterfully. This is not just about some personal dispute. Okay? This is not all that's going on. He's, uh, he's diving into a deeper universal issue here. Given the love of Christ, as we see in Christ's death for us, how then should we live? How do we respond to that? And he's saying, no longer for ourselves, but for other people. That one phrase, he died for me, so I'll live for him. Right? Which means living for others, because that's how Jesus rolled. That's verse 14 and 15. Let's go into 16 and 21. You got some therefores here. Let's pay attention to those because you see the therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for, right? 16. Uh, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Uh, therefore, meaning, given the love of Christ compels us to act in service of others, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. I want you to notice the we language Paul's using. He isn't making an observation about, hey, this has been true in my spiritual journey for me. No, he's making a universal claim because Jesus died for all and built on what he just said. So the love of Christ changes how we see each other. We no longer see people as the world does, a human point of view. Some of your Bibles probably say we don't see people according to the flesh, which Paul certainly did that before his conversion. My goodness, as did we. So when Christians regard or judge one another, 
by worldly standards, according to the flesh, his language, Paul's language, that means we're using a very warped and very twisted and highly arbitrary measuring stick, okay? And always results in the same thing in church. Always division, discord, legalism, factions, rancor, judgment, and pride, ultimately. All of which, guess what? 100% antithetical to reconciliation. So I should regard Paul differently because of the ground at the foot of the cross is level. I should regard Chris equally because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. So we're eye to eye, we're shoulder to shoulder, right? We're in the same boat. The only measuring stick we have, which by the way is not ours, is the cross of Jesus. So we regard each other through the eyes of grace. It's that great line, but for the grace of God, go I. So, if we, use, if we judge people according to the flesh, fellow Christians, it leads nowhere good. So this, that's our measuring stick. And at the foot of the cross, guess what? We're shoulder to shoulder, every one of us eye to eye. And Paul makes this one point, I could go into this in detail, but I'm not going to uh, a lot at least. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. I think he's just saying here, you know, before we believed in Jesus, we regarded Jesus with that same crooked, twisted measuring stick. We didn't see him for who he was. And Paul especially was certainly guilty of this before Jesus rescued him by knocking him off his horse on the way to Damascus. Verse 17. Therefore, there's another one. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Another therefore. Why do we no longer regard people according to the flesh? Kind of building this case. Here we go. Piece by piece. The translation here is pretty fascinating because there are really no verbs or pronouns in it. Here's the way it literally reads in the Greek. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, new creation. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, new creation. I'm going to build out that out a bit. I think it captures the scope of what Jesus' death has accomplished. What does it mean to be in Christ? Okay? It means one of the things it means, or a few of the things it means, conversion isn't merely about me as an individual. That's not the only thing it's about. There's a communal, communal reality because being in Christ not only means that I'm united with Jesus, which I am, but uh, it also means I join the holy fray that is called his body. Okay? You inherit a family. You get brothers and sisters when you become a Christian. There's a huge we and an us. That's what it means to be in Christ. So we, Christians, are now part of this great salvation story. Being a new creation means we become part of that grand, redemptive, uh, new creation work that God is orchestrating in the world. So when you meet Jesus, you join the family and the story that God's been telling through the centuries. So to be in Christ, that's part of being a new creation, is to be in Christ and to be part of this family. So to be in Christ is to be a new creation, and the vice versa is also true. But of course, when we are converted and come to know Jesus, of course there's a strong personal element. You, me, individually, become a new creation and a new creature. So when you become a Christian, you're made new. Your heart begins to change. Your standing with God changes. Your positional um, standing with God changes because you're now reconciled with God. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. So it says, 
new creation in Christ, there's a profound individual element to that, but there's also this massive communal element to it as well. They're both true. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, fitting on the new again. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus kicks off a new age. Paul is certainly speaking objectively here. Uh, everything that came, came before Jesus in his life, that's the old stuff. That's passed away. So that B.C., A.D., uh, how we used to mark history, same thing. That's what I'm talking about. So before Jesus, there's before Jesus, and there's after. He is the dividing line. That's the old, that's the dividing line between old and new. That's true for our lives as well, right? Paul has an old life, right? He might be talking about that here. We have our own B.C. and A.D. Before Jesus, since I met Jesus, we all have that. We've got our old life, but that does not define us anymore. No longer what's true about us. Grace is. Okay, that's the old. Because, behold, the new has come. Gosh, God radically reorients everything about our lives. So when Paul's talking about old and new, he's mining from some pretty strong Old Testament connections. In Isaiah, that I want to point out, they're, they're important. Isaiah 43, 18 to 19. It is part of the new. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Okay. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, a lot of beholds in this passage. Uh, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former, i.e. the old things, shall not be remembered to come into mind. Or Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Here's the point. Those verses in Isaiah all revolve around the central theme in Israel's history. Exile. Exile. God is ending their exile and bringing them back home. This is the language of reconciliation. Even if we don't recognize it just, just yet. This is the language of restoration. It's the language of what it means to end uh, alienation between God and man, it's an end to exile. So Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying, that Jesus fulfilled and completed that part of Israel's story. He's taking that theme and kind of blowing it out uh, into technicolor, right? This is the vast, cosmic, new creation work I, I talked about earlier. So the exile of sin, that's over, okay? So Jesus has not only fulfilled that part of Israel's story, uh, he's gone way beyond it. We've been welcomed home again, okay? Christ has made the way. So Christ is reconciling the world to himself, making all things new. It is, it's really spectacular if you try to get your head around that, the cosmic scope of this, because this isn't just about my personal salvation. It's not a lot more than that, just new. Verse 18, if you don't remember anything from the sermon, remember this, all of this is from God. All of this is from God. This is so... Oh, we can't miss this. This is the gospel drum that Paul bangs over and over and over and over. The heart of his ministry, this new, all this new, it's God's work. It's all from God, and it is a reconciling work. I said earlier that reconciliation is a relational uh, metaphor. More than a metaphor, you know what I mean. It's, it's relational. It's a way to describe when there's estrangement, when there's alienation. Uh, that's caused by sin. It's a rupture in the relationship. It's a chasm between God and between us. So this is about healing that rupture 
caused by sin and our exile uh, ending, God welcoming us home. Exile, very fitting, powerful metaphor here. All this is from God, all of it, okay? Who through Christ, this will prove my point, Paul's really, and God's, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And look, in the New Testament, God reconciles, right? He does the work, he bankrolls it, it's his idea, he pays for it. Humans are reconciled, we receive it. We receive the benefits of God's good work. I love this because God is not just a judge who stands aloof from your eye. He is a judge who, and this is in the words of Garland, enters into a personal relationship with the accused. A judge does that. This judge does. Okay? And I'm going to move even further. Jesus is not only a judge who enters into personal relationship with the accused, he actually willingly steps in for the guilty. Okay? More on that in a minute. And God gave us this ministry of reconciliation. The word there for ministry is the same word we derive the word deacon from, diakonos. And it means service, service to other people. It means there's a work you do for someone else's behalf. You serve them in that way. So this ministry, this serving and reconciliation, we've been reconciled to God. And now we're charged basically to go and do likewise in the church, but also out in the world. You don't have to read much about Paul to, read, to, to believe that he, he really bought into practicing reconciliation in the church. I mean, he really, really did. He practiced what he preached, but he never endorsed making peace or ignoring sin to keep the peace. No, he was never going to smooth things over. He always exhorted his churches to do the hard relational work of reconciliation. Always. And he's doing it right here uh, with the Corinthians. And this isn't the first time. They've gone a few rounds already. So if we can't practice reconciliation in the church, what real hope do we have of practicing it out in the world? We can't do it here. What power do we have to bring out to the world? Because it starts with us. It starts with us. That reconciling work. We have to do it with each other. Because, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us this message of reconciliation. I say a lot about this, but I'm just going to be brief. God gave us this ministry and he entrusted it to us. He gave it to us and entrusted it. That's a lovely for you. Trust something to someone. It means you're giving something precious, something of great worth, something that matters to you. It's, there's nothing uh, casual about it, is there? If I trust you with something that's dear to me, I want you to take care of it. I want you to steward it, right? Verse 20, therefore, and I think it's our last therefore. Notice how they all build. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Jesus, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know what an ambassador is? It wasn't a whole lot different from Paul's day and age. It's a person who speaks on behalf of the nation. A leader of the nation goes to another nation uh, and that person carries the power and the authority of their boss right so they have authority but it's, it's on loan. it's not theirs the apostles all understood this but here's an interesting uh, nuance in Paul's day ambassadors were sent to Rome to curry favor and to appease the Roman leaders okay they 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 went 
to uh, smooth things over. They went to patch up things that were well with the Roman Empire. They sent ambassadors to go do that work. Listen to how differently God works. Okay? That's the worldly way. That's the fleshly way. Listen to how God works. So our actually mighty and sovereign God, more sovereign than the Roman Empire, sends out his ambassadors to a wayward humanity. It's completely backwards. It's completely backwards. Those who sinned against him, uh, rather than waiting for them to come to him and uh, seek, his, seek and beg his favor. Right? It's forgiveness. Totally backwards. I love it. It's the prodigal God. So, ambassadors for Christ. What does that mean? God sends us out of the world. It means that, certainly. There's a missional aspect to it. But it means God speaking his hope through us. We bring a message from our king, right? We're being sent out from our king that tells the world, all these places we go, that they don't have to live in exile or alienation any longer. They have a true home now because of Jesus. He's bridged the chasm because of our sin. So as ambassadors, we carry a very consoling, hopeful message into the world. That is good news, folks. That's good news. God makes his appeal through us. Paul says, I'm, th I'm thinking of, uh, or I'm often reminded of softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, right? Come home, come home sinner. All who weary, come home. It's that. It's what it is. And thus Paul implores his word, the Corinthians on behalf of Jesus, to be reconciled to God. Okay? This is Paul, the apostle. He's acting as an ambassador here. I don't know if he's trying to offer an object lesson, but he's doing it. This is Paul, the apostle, acting as an ambassador to the Corinthians, which is what he means when he says, on behalf of Jesus. Okay? It's showing what that means. But I find this part a little confusing. Why would Paul ask Christians to be reconciled to God? And if they're Christians, didn't that already happen? Didn't the reconciliation thing, uh, when they're converted already happened based off everything we've just learned. Why does he join them this way? If that's the case. Well, I think it's, it's the simple answer. Because if they truly understood what Jesus had done for them, if they really understood his reconciling work, they would act very differently. So Paul is laying it all out for them. That's why I think he's laying it all out for them through long term. Because they're either missing something in their understanding, they just haven't gotten, they haven't grasped it yet, or there's in the terms of sin and repentance is needed. Don't know. I will say that reconciliation doesn't happen without repentance, owning our part in that broken relationship. And notice how Paul says, be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? It's, uh, maybe it's verse 20, I think. 21. Be reconciled to God. He doesn't, he doesn't say be reconciled to people. That seems a little uh, antithetical based off of what I said, or at least it's interesting. Um, I think what Paul's implying here is that if you truly understand, if you understand what God's done for you, if you really get it, if you understand the reconciliation that Jesus made possible, you're going to participate in that ministry with other people. If you really get it, it's the same kind of logic Jesus employs in the greatest commandment. You love God with all of who you are, and guess what? That should lead to love the neighbor. If it doesn't, then it means you miss something. It means you miss something crucial. 
Finally, verse 21, and I will say this could be an entire sermon. Oh, a beautiful verse. For our sake he made him sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, <laughs> this is such a rich verse. I'm going to have to give it such short shrift um, to keep focused. Jesus took our place. He atoned for all our sin, uh, all that, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is a profound shift in our standing with God. The righteousness of God. That's how we're viewed now. Let me close here. Two uh, basic questions. One for us as a church, amongst a church, and one for how we how we interact with the world, okay? I'm going to take, for the first part, I'm going to take a question from Trinity Sunday. Now, how are your relationships? And I mean specifically in the church. How are your relationships in the church with other Christians? Uh, and how are your relationships here, King of Kings? So kind of broadly, how are your relationships with other Christians? How are your relationships here at King of Kings? Are there any fences that need to be mended? Do you need to reconcile with a brother and sister? Take Paul's exhortation here seriously. Be compelled in the ways I spoke of by the love of Jesus to reconcile with your brothers and sisters. Don't, don't harden your heart. Christ reconciled you, so why withhold that reconciliation from your brothers and sisters? Okay? So the first thing is just, hey, how are things with your fellow Christians? Do you have fences to that? I encourage you in that to move towards that. Let the love of Jesus bring you straight into resolving those things. Second piece. Lastly, this is how we interact with the world. With the world. Uh, you are an ambassador of Jesus. I didn't say you might be. I didn't say you could be. I didn't say if you try really hard, you, you might be. You are an ambassador of Jesus out of the world. And God puts you in different places purposefully in the world. So God charges us with being active reconcilers. Okay? We've been entrusted with that, right? that ministry of reconciliation. God's given us something very precious. We've experienced the love of Christ firsthand. Because of it, we have a very hopeful message for the world, a very broken world. So we can be healers in a world that's marked by hate and discord and broken relationships. So let me get to the point even more. Who are you seeking out in Jesus' name? To whom is the love of Christ compelling? To whom? Who's upon your heart? And if there's no one upon your heart, ask the Lord. Lord, open my eyes to the people around me. Who are the people I should be burdened for and be looking to bring this message of hope to? It's a missional question for you, for me, but it's also us. It's a me, we question. Okay, it's a both and. It'll happen to you. You each have your mission and your spheres of influence in your life. Or God is active, but it means for us too. Our corporate mission as a church. It's a me, we question. Personally, I can't wait to see how God fleshes this out in the more ethnically and economically diverse places in Charlotte, which is going to be our new home the weekend of 7-11. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yes, can't wait. What will it be like to be ambassadors of Jesus there? What will it be like to go, what does it mean to be an active reconciler in that community and to serve? We're going to find out.